Hey there, how you doing? My name is David, and I have the privilege of serving as the pastor of 6-8 Church here in Vancouver, Washington. What you're about to hear is a message from our Sunday morning gathering, and we hope it encourages and inspires you on your journey to be more like Christ. For more information about 6-8 Church, visit 6-8church.com. That's the number 6 and the number 8 church.com. But today we're talking about one of my favorite topics, which is truth. Absolute truth. And the question that uh, is posed is, how can Christianity claim to have the truth? And when you start talking about the truth, absolute truth, then you start asking questions, well, what is truth? And is there such a thing as truth? In a survey in 2010, uh, there were two national surveys conducted by Barna Research. So this is 10 years ago. Two national surveys conducted by Barna Research, people were asked if they believe that there are moral absolutes that are unchanging or that moral truth is relative to the circumstances. So the question is, are there moral absolutes that never change or is there moral truth that is relative to the circumstance? By a three to one margin, adults said, truth is always relative to the person and their situation. Three to one margin. Among teenagers, 83% said moral truth depends on the circumstances and only 6% said Moral truth is absolute. This was 10 years ago. Listening uh, to a podcast, it was an interview of Francis Chan, who I know many of you like to listen to, um, by a guy named Kerry Newhoff. And he does a, a leadership podcast and interviews a lot of Christian leaders on that podcast, and they were talking about some of the things that came up with when Francis Chan announced that he's going to be taking his family and moving overseas permanently to be a missionary in, um, I believe it was Hong Kong. And when he made that announcement, he wasn't even necessarily making the announcement, he was just giving a sermon and talked about that's what he and his family were doing. And then it kind of blew up all over the internet and people were, were critiquing him for making that announcement or saying that. They were saying that he was condemning America for not wanting to uh, stay in America and serve and you know, just kind of started saying all of these things about his position. And in the context of that conversation, uh, Carrie, the host, said this, and then Francis Chan affirmed that he said, we live in the era of strongly held but poorly formed beliefs. We live in the era of strongly held but poorly formed beliefs. beliefs. This, as we've already talked about earlier in this series, especially in the first week, it can be and is often coupled with a ridiculous arrogance that what we believe, regardless of how poor, poorly formed it might be, is absolutely right. Whatever we believe is right, even if we have not carefully formed it. We are our, our own source of absolute truth, 
in this society, but it isn't just a problem in secular society. This is in the church as well. In the book this week, there are a couple of quotes from uh, well-known authors throughout history. Uh, C.S. Lewis from The Abolition of Man, he says this, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? Or how about if you saw through the garden too? A wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. And then uh, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote this, I think, nearly 100 years ago, he says, the new rebel is a skeptic and will not trust anything. Therefore, he can never really be a revolutionary, for all denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. All denunciation implies a moral doctrine of some kind. Therefore, the modern man in revolt has become practically useless for all purposes of revolt. By rebelling against everything, he has lost his right to rebel against anything. There is a thought that stops all thought. That is the only thought that ought to be stopped. I don't know if you've heard this phrase, but uh, it's called deconstruction, and it's a, it actually started in the literary world, and uh, deconstruction was, is something where they seek to go through a work of literature and basically dismantle it, break it down to all its pieces, tear it apart, and prove that it's inconsistent with itself, and by proving that the piece of literature is inconsistent with itself, it no longer has the authority or can be trusted. This work, this idea moved into the philosophical realm where we started to pick apart philosophies and deconstruct philosophies and, and disprove them against themselves because they conflict with themselves. They cannot then be true. This has been happening in our society for you know, several generations from before I was born and probably you know, you know, 60, 70, 80 years, maybe even longer stretching all the way back to the Enlightenment. Where it's a danger is it's also happened to the church. And it's been in the church, and it's been done by the church for generations. I myself have, have I regrettedly have to admit that I have participated in some deconstruction. No, it is not wrong to critically think about God, the gospel, or church that is not wrong to, to try to think deeply and well about these things. Neither is it wrong to seek to do things as best they can be done in the church. But I have to ask the question, is it wrong to deconstruct the family of God as God designed it? I think we live in a world that is trying to see through everything except ourselves. 
we're trying to we're trying to look through and see through everything around us except ourselves we are happy to passionately point out the flaws in someone else's life, someone else's way of thinking, someone else's belief system. But if the microscope gets readjusted on our lives, it's easy for us to get defensive and accusatory. All you have to do is watch the news for about three seconds to see that happening. Well, let me, uh, let me perhaps illustrate this with something very, very pertinent to our church this week. And I'm using this simply as an illustration, not an accusation. So this week I shared with you on Workplace that it would appear that Tim Keller, the author of the book we're using in uh, this series, Questions, makes room for belief in evolution. Now, without raising your hands, I would like you to think and ask, your, ask yourself, did that knowledge affect your ability to learn from his teaching? Did knowing that Timothy Keller makes room for evolution uh, in his teaching, did that affect your ability to learn from his teaching? Did you possibly discount what he said or maybe even throw out everything he said because you disagree with him on the one topic of evolution? By contrast, and I'm just saying this to illustrate that we're all in danger of this right, right now, including me. By contrast, how many of us in this room could thoughtfully articulate our views on evolution, especially as they pertain to the story of salvation? How, do, how does my view on evo evolution affect the story of salvation? So my point is that, that in the church, we are not immune from this way of thinking. We, because it is around us all the time, we are just as in danger of, of bringing this deconstructive way of thinking into the church. And the array of topics for which we have passionately stood stands, uh, it's, it's shockingly, let me start over. And with the array of topics for which we have passionate stands with shockingly unformed foundations is vast in the church. From Genesis to Revelation, every topic in between, every thought, period, question mark, apostrophe, and so on. Now, to address the, the concern of Timothy Keller on evolution, let me just say this. This is a quote from him that I found. I have a friend of mine who loves uh, Tim Keller and has spent his you know, entire ministry career listening to his sermons, and so I re reached out to him, and uh, he found some material for me. So this is what Tim Keller says. So, so here's what I like when you're talking about whether you're gonna use creation or evolution or both. He says, here's what I like. I like the messy approach, which is I think there was an Adam and an Eve. That's important. I think there was a real fall. I think that happened. And I also think, or, or I also think that there also was a very long process, probably, you know, probably, you know, that the earth probably is very old and that there was some kind of process of natural selection that God guided and used and maybe intervened in. And that's just the messy part. I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to go beyond that. So that's, that's his belief. 
Now, I would disagree with him on that, but does that mean I discount everything that he says because of that disagreement? So, I think from my research on Tim Keller, what he's trying to do is to make it, uh, to not make it impossible for someone who believes in evolution to come to Christ. It would appear to me that, that his efforts are to, to not make evolution a barrier, to, to not make you have to, before you can come to Christ, you have to believe in a literal creation. That would appear to me what he's trying to do. And then, then I think we have to ask ourselves, is that right or wrong? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, Paul says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So based on what the Apostle Paul says right here, I think as long as, our, as what we do in our efforts to bring people into the kingdom of God do not lead us out from under Christ's law, it would appear that we have the freedom to do so. So as long as what Timothy Keller is, is, is preaching and teaching does not lead him out from under Christ's law, he at least appears to have the ability to do that. Now that could be a much more nuanced and difficult discussion, but that's not really the point of the sermon this morning, so we're going to move on. If you have questions on that, please talk to me after the service. I'll be here just for that. But it illustrates that we cling tightly and passionately to our views. But I would, I, would, I would argue, I would say that for us as followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to cling tightly and passionately to something, it must be the truth. Those things that we cling to tightly and, and throw the entire passion of our souls behind must be true. Which leads us to the question then, what is truth? And how can Christianity claim to have the truth? One of the things I think uh, Tim Keller did well in the book was to illustrate the fact that all religions, all belief systems, all philosophies, all systems of thought claim to be the truth and are exclusive in nature. All religions, all belief systems, all philosophies, all political systems, all systems of thought claim to be the truth and are exclusive in nature. For instance, this afternoon is the Super Bowl. I can almost guarantee that there are people in this room or in this building that believe there is only one team to root for in this game. And I can almost guarantee that they think it's actually wrong to root for the other team. And at the same time, those who root for their favorite team 
will probably spend the afternoon with other like-minded fans. Now, if I came to your house to passionately root for the other team, would I be welcome? I think this is because everyone believes that we have the truth about everything, even down to which football team to root for. We have no problems excluding competing beliefs and no problems with excommunicating anyone who does not espouse the same beliefs. And that's just with football. How do we react and react when it's something that's more deeply held? How do we act and react when it comes to things like public or private school? How do we act and react when it comes to homeschooling or unschooling? How about things like vaccinations, climate change, the ethical treatment of animals, or fracking? How do we act and react? What about with politics and what's been happening this past week with the impeachment process? How, how do we react or act in accordance with our beliefs? What about with more personal topics like racial reconciliation, helping the poor, or even our beliefs about salvation, God, Jesus, and the Bible. How do we act and react? I think in our culture, I would say that we believe in absolute truth in the sense that we absolutely believe we have the truth. We believe in absolute truth in the sense that we absolutely believe we have the truth. And we cling tightly to and fight ferociously for our truth, oftentimes before investigating it. But what happens then when we discover that we're wrong? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. What, what happens when you discover that you're wrong? Or what happens when you discover a part of your life is inconsistent with your beliefs? I mean, when the truth you believe is your truth and you discover an inconsistency with yourself and that truth, what is it going to lead to? It leads to an identity crisis, which seems to be the constant state of society around us these days. It's like everything in our culture is screaming, who are we? We don't know who we are anymore. Has this happened to you? It certainly happened to me. So where do we go to find the answer? Let's go to Jesus. John chapter 8. John 8 verses 31 and following. Jesus is talking to the Jews, and he says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said. So these are Jews who had believed Jesus. He says, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and, and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham said. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. How can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So many things in this passage. We've talked about a lot of them over the years. A few I want to highlight. Well, what did Jesus say? Jesus said that holding to his teaching is the only way to know the truth and be set free from the bondage of the God of this age. Kind of a summary of stuff that he said in this passage. Holding to his teaching is the only way to know the truth and be set free from the bondage of the God of this age. But how did the Jews reply to this truth claim of Jesus? They replied with a lie and their own truth claim. The lie was, we have never been slaves of anyone. Maybe these specific men had never been true slaves, but their ancestors certainly had been slaves, and these men were currently being oppressed by Rome, so in some form they were actually in bondage. But the truth claim they made was that, how can you claim to set us free when we're already free? We're free now. This little verse and uh, little phrase in verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, which, by the way, was Abraham's descendants who ended up in, as slaves in Egypt. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I think this is a a great point we can learn from Jesus, is that the people who are not in the truth have no room for the truth. 
People who, who have not yet been set free by the truth of Jesus have no room in their hearts for the truth of Jesus. And so we constantly look for ways to crowd out anything that could be the real truth. But I think what Jesus is saying is that he's saying, I am the truth. We'll get to that in a minute. I am the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So the only way to be set free from the bondage of sin is to hold to my teaching. These are all, these are all words of Jesus put together in one statement. I am the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, and the only way to be set free from the bondage of sin is to hold to my teaching. John chapter 18, verse 37 and 38, when Jesus is being questioned by Pilate before he's going to be crucified, Pilate says to him, you are a king then, Jesus answered. You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate retorted, what is truth? It's a good question. Good question, Pilate. Truth is, as we've said before, that which corresponds with reality. Really simple way to put it, this is so. It's what's real. If I say that this is a table, that is a true statement because that corresponds with reality. I can say this is a glass table, that corresponds with reality. If I say this is a wooden table, that is an untrue statement because that no longer corresponds with reality, that is no longer true, right? So that is what truth is. So if truth is that which corresponds with reality, then we need to ask ourselves, what is real? What is real? Has anyone in this room heard of the porotifant? The porotifant. Has anyone heard of the porotifant? P-O-R-R-A-T-E-P-H-A-N-T. It's an animal that is part porpoise, part parrot, and part elephant. It weighs anywhere from 500 to 3,000 pounds. It can fly. It can swim for long periods of time under the water. It can repeat words back that you say and has a tremendous appetite for peanuts. It's an incredibly rare animal and I am one of a select few who has ever been allowed to see it. Do you believe me? How would you go about the process of seeing if the porotifant is real? You would probably want proof, right? You would say, do you have any pictures? Sorry, I don't have any pictures. It's just, I've just, but I've seen it. Well, well, who else has seen this impossible thing that can testify to its existence? Who else can we, who do we know that, that's trustworthy, that can testify that they have seen this thing? Uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I've seen it, but I don't know who else has seen it. But even more so than that, you would probably say, I'll believe it when I see it. Right? I will believe in the parodophant when I have seen the parodophant with my own eyes. 
I'll believe it when I see it. How do we know what is real? John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. Every other man-made religion either worships a man who tried to become a god or a god who has never been seen. Every other religion either worships a man who has tried to become a god or a god who has never been seen. But Christianity worships the god who became a man, who walked with us in our pain, who out of compassion became one of his own creations and lived the only true life, the only real life that corresponds with reality. Where other religions require us to adjust our lives to an unseen, unknowable entity, Christianity gives us the opportunity to adjust our lives to the real, tangible, visible person of Jesus. In the book, Keller says this, in the most radical way God has adjusted to us in his incarnation and atonement. In Jesus Christ, he became a limited being, vulnerable to suffering and death. On the cross, he submitted to our condition as sinners and died in our place to forgive us. In the most profound way, God has said to us, in Christ, I will adjust to you, I will change for you, I'll serve you, though it means a sacrifice for me. If he has done this for us, we can and should say the same to God and others. St. Paul writes, the love of Christ constrains us. 2 Corinthians 5.14. The NIV says the love of Christ compels us. The actual literal translation for that word is controls us. The love of Christ controls us. In Christ, we have seen what is real. Aristotle once said, a perfect person, if he ever came among us, would reveal by his very nature all the imperfection around him. A perfect person, if he ever came amongst us, would reveal by his very nature all the imperfection around him. When our lives are compared then to the reality of the life of Christ, it doesn't take too long to see the imperfection in ourselves. When our lives are juxtaposed against the life of Christ, we begin to see all the lies of the enemy that we have believed, we bought into, and we identify with. We see how the life we have embraced is no life at all. And if we continue on this same course, our lives will certainly end up in destruction. John chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The lie of the thief who rules this world leads to death and destruction. The life of the thief who rules this world leads to death and destruction. His life is no life at all. It is a lie. But the life of Christ is the only true abundant life. John chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The more we get to know Christ, the more we experience Christ in our day-to-day lives, the more we spend time with him, the more we hold to his teaching, the more that we will be transformed into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory. It's a lifelong process of juxtaposition. At first, it's the major things. We start to notice our lives taking a different shape. Over time, the primary structure, though, becomes set in place, but the details continue to change. I, uh, I'm a, I call myself a woodworker. I like working with wood. That at least is a true and accurate statement. I'm going to get this out here where you can hopefully see a little bit better without destroying guitars and things and running it off the front of the stage. That's kind of close. I'll move it when I'm done. So this is one of my most recent projects, um, a keyboard stand. Ironically enough, it's not quite big enough yet, but that's what it's going to look like. When I first started making things out of wood, I didn't have a tremendous amount of skill. For instance, I didn't know which side of the line to cut on when you measure. Do you cut on the left side of the line, on the right side of the line? Do you cut right on the line? Where do you cut when you're cutting a piece of wood? Didn't even knew, know that that necessarily matters, and you may not have known that until just now. I could make things, I was capable of making things, but upon closer inspection, even an untrained eye could see the flaws. But as I made more and more things, I started to read books, I watched YouTube videos, and very importantly, I learned from other woodworkers by working alongside them on their projects. Over time, I learned which side of the line to cut on how to cut square and accurate. I learned how to set up my tools to cut more precisely. And just as important, I learned how important it is to buy tools that are capable of precision. Now when I make something, the untrained eye and probably even a few fairly well-trained eyes probably can't see the flaws. I can sometimes. But someone more skilled than I, more advanced and more trained than me, can see all the things that I still don't see. I can both notice flaws more easily as well as precision and craftsmanship more easily in other things. I can see both the good and the bad better. If you come and inspect this carefully, you may not see some of the flaws, but I still do. I notice some of the flaws. I'm hesitant to point them out to you because then that's all you'll ever see. 
especially some of the more critical people in here who are, have already been looking for flaws to point out to put me in my place about it. But for instance, this board was, was warped, had a bow to it. So I, I had to work really hard with a, with a pry bar and a block on this board, pulling down on it with all my might to try to get this gap to not be a great big gap and to stand out. And you can kind of see with the light shining on it that there's a bigger shadow here than there is on the edges. So it's just maybe just a little bit off. Maybe you never would have seen that. Maybe you never would have noticed that had I not pointed it out to you. Some of you may even be looking at that and see, what are you talking about? I'm not able to see that. I think this is, this is the, the Christ-like life. I think the same is true for us in our walk with Christ. When we first come to him, there are massive changes to our lives as our lives lose the destructure of this world and its lies and deception and begin then to be formed by the reality of Christ and his kingdom. When we first come to Christ, it's like building the frame for this structure for the very first time. And, and it did not exist, and then it existed, and it's a very visible change, a very visible, noticeable difference. These changes often appear massive and obvious to us and those around us. Over time, as we surrender to the truth, of reality in Christ, of what is real in Christ, the imperfections are less and less obvious to those around us, but we still often see the gaps. We may know which side of the line to stand on. We may be able to live our lives more in accordance with God's standards of accuracy, and we may be squared up to his truth on a much higher level. But we also know that we need to continue to seek God's understanding by learning from others who are farther along than us. Sometimes we even have to trade out the tools that we use to get us to this point for more precise tools. Eventually we, we start getting to the point where even a well-trained eye may not be able to see how our lives are still in contrast with the life of Christ. Sometimes we know where we need improvements. Other times there are things that we don't see until someone who loves us helps us see them. But this is the hope of Christianity. This is the hope of being a Christ follower. It's that without Christ, before Christ, without Christ in our lives, the, our existence is deformed, it is destroyed, it is deconstructed, it is built on lie upon lie upon lie on things that have nothing to do with the actual reality that God created and established the foundations of the earth upon. Apart from Christ, our lives are spent embracing poorly formed beliefs. But in Christ... What Christ does in us through the power of the Spirit, which we're going to get to in just a second, is he starts to help us get our feet on firm footing 
And he starts to build the house that is going to house his presence and, and his goodness and all of the things that make Christ in us a good thing. And a lot of times that's an obvious procedure that happens at the beginning, but over time it starts to look more and more minute. But this is the hope of Christianity. Do we, do we go with the way of the world and allow ourselves to be continually deformed and deconstructed, a, a nebulous of ideas, none of which relate to or pertain to one another? Or do we embrace the life of Christ where he comes in and he is the builder and he builds the house? And if God builds the house, nothing can stand against it. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus talking to his disciples a few hours before he was going to be betrayed. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. The world, as Jesus said, has no room for the truth in their lives. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers work in vain. But if the Lord builds the house, then God has built then a house in our lives where his presence can dwell. And if his presence, which is the spirit of truth, can come and dwell in the hearts of those who believe, then we have in us the spirit of what is actual reality living in our hearts. So what is real is living in us and helps us and empowers us and encourages us and equips us and moves us into the life that is built on the reality of the life of Christ. But if you love me, you keep my commands. Does this mean that we earn our salvation or status with God by keeping his commands? No, that's actually not possible. But when you are changed by God's love, his love for you that is poured out in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, when, when you are changed by that love, your response is love. When you're changed by love, your response is love. And when you love someone, you give up what you think are freedoms so that you can experience true freedom, the true freedom that is only found within the confines of a relationship. Page 49 of the book, Keller says, a love relationship limits your personal options. Again, we are confronted with the complexity of freedom. 
Human beings are most free and alive in relationships of love. We only become ourselves in love, and yet healthy love relationships involve mutual, unselfish service, a mutual loss of independence. If we love Jesus, we keep his commands. We cannot deconstruct the commands of Jesus and try, try to cut them out altogether and say, well, that's not really what Jesus meant. No, no, it is because of love, because he loved us and because we respond by love that we keep his commands because he said, if you love me, you keep my commands. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will show myself to them. The one who does what I command is the one who loves me. So we respond to God's love by pouring out ourselves with loving and obedience to his commands. And the keeping of those commands starts to change the way our lives look. The keeping of those commands starts to build a different looking house, starts to change the structure of our lives. But that's not all. We are not restrained to keeping the commands in our own power. We're not forced to try to just muster up enough gumption to try to keep the commands of Jesus. God, as Jesus said, sends us the spirit of truth. He said to the disciples, you will know him for he lives with you and will be in you. He said that to the disciples before the Holy Spirit was sent on Pentecost. For now, after, uh, for after Pentecost, for us who follow Jesus Christ, that is, that would be said something, but you know him for he lives with you and is in you. The life of every believer has the presence of the Holy Spirit living in them. So we have in us the presence of Christ dwelling in us, giving us the power to live the Christ-like life. God sends this Spirit to dwell in us, and the world cannot accept it because the world doesn't see him or know him. The world cannot accept. The world has no room for this teaching. The world has no room for this understanding because there is no room yet built for this person. But we know him because he lives with us and in us. And the more that he lives in us, the more we realize that Jesus is in the Father. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. The more and longer that he lives in us, the more we see Christ in us and we see where Christ still needs to do his transformative work. See, this is not something that we can earn. It is only a gift that can be received. It is, it is something that is only, only acquired through total and complete surrender, the total dying of ourselves to whatever we think life is. And when we die to what we think life is, then we can finally be awakened, revived, and resurrected to what the real life actually is in Jesus Christ. What we thought was real will start to perish and, and fall away and die, but what is real life will be brought up out of the ashes of what has just perished and God will give us new life in Christ if we allow him. 
Are there restrictions to being a Christ follower? Are there things you can and cannot do? Sure. Just as there are in every religious and philosophical system. But here's the thing. Because Jesus is what's real, because Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth, because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, and the life that he lived is the real life, because that is truth, when we then, out of love, embrace the commands of Christ, we are not being restrained or restricted from what we think is freedom. We're actually being restrained and restricted from death and destruction. So, so we're, God, through Jesus Christ and the spirit of truth living in us, telling us we should not do this thing or we should not live in this way, is not restraining us from experiencing life. He is restraining us from paths that lead to death and destruction. And if we were not in Christ restrained from such things, we would actually have no peace. We would have no security and we would likely be constantly paralyzed by fear or on the constant threat of losing the gift that we have received. But because there are restraints, because I have the spirit of truth, the spirit of what's real, what actual reality is, because I have the spirit of the reality of Jesus Christ, the spirit of that which is as real as real gets, living within me, serving as a guide to restrain me from that which might harm me, a source by which I become like Christ, and as a contrast by which I can see those things in me that are putting me in danger of death and destruction, because I have that spirit living in me, I can rest in the peace of God. So yes, there is absolute truth. There is a truth that God designed the world to operate in. Yes, we have the truth. But lastly, I don't have this quote for you, but you can write it down. It's by, I believe, George MacDonald. To give truth to him who loves it not is to only give more multiplied reasons for him to hate or for him to dislike or for him to disagree. I think I have the quote on my phone. I'm going to get it real quick so I don't mess it up. George MacDonald, to give truth to him who loves it not is but to give him more plentiful material for misinterpretation. Does Christianity claim to have the truth? It sure does. Does that mean we should take our truth and beat people over the head with it? It absolutely does not. I think we follow in the footsteps of Paul who selflessly we, we give up all of our rights, everything we think we are entitled to and become whatever it takes so that we can maybe win a few.
I don't think that right now what the world needs is is Christians beating people over the head with the truth they are not capable of living up to. I think what we need is Christians who, out of love, sacrifice themselves, surrender, give up themselves so that some might believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, coming to this earth, for sending him as a gift of love to show us what is real and what is fake, what is built on the foundations that you built the entire world upon and what is seeking to deconstruct and destroy that which God has created. I thank you, Father, that we're not left as orphans without hope and without God in the world, but that we have God himself who is dwelling in us in the spirit of truth to guide us into all truth. I pray, Father, for all of us as Christ followers this morning in this room that we would lean into that spirit of truth more and more in our lives and that we would allow ourselves to surrender on a constant, daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis to the spirit of truth who is working to conform us and transform us into the image of Christ. That we would be submissive and surrender to that spirit who knows what is real and what is fake, who can see as the master builder all of the things that are out of line with God's word and with God's ways and start to graciously and lovingly bring those things in accordance. Not through muster, not through working hard, but through the equipping and empowerment of the indwelling Holy Spirit, giving us the ability to do these things. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to become this kind of love, this kind of love of Christ that laid down everything, poured everything out, gave up everything of himself so that a few might choose. And I pray, Father, that we would become those kinds of Christ followers this week, that you would show us ways by the prompting of the Holy Spirit who's leading us to those opportunities, that you would show us where and when we can embrace the sacrifice. We can embrace surrender. We can cling tightly to the dying of ourselves. And that through that death, through that sacrifice, you might bring one, even one, into the newness of life through you. I pray, Father, do that. Do it again through our people. Do it again through us. Do it again this week and the weeks to come. I pray, Father, bring the lost, those who have embraced the brokenness of this world and whose destiny is destruction. Bring them into the light. Bring them into life through your body, filled with the presence of the Spirit of truth, becoming the person of Christ so that they might see what reality really is. In Jesus' name.